Well, uh, we are in John chapter 10, and uh, it is my pleasure and honor to be able to preach God's word from you, to you today. Um, so if you are new at the Grove, or perhaps you've been gone for a while, uh, and now you're headed back into the Grove, let me catch us all up. Matter of fact, we're going to do a lot of survey through the book of John today because we kind of find ourselves at the end of Jesus's public ministry. And as we're doing that, um, we're going to need to kind of recap a few things. The first thing we're going to recap is the purpose of the book of John. Every time we come up here, every time we preach through the book of John, the first thing we all want to get our mind around is what is this book all about? And we find the purpose statement of the book of John at the end of the book of John. It's John 20, 31, where John says this, these things in this book were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not enough just to know that he's the Christ, to have life. Instead, it is about believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and then we would have life. And Jesus is gonna have a lot to say about what belief looks like today. That's not just an, an, an intellectual affirmation, but is a total surrender to the person of Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Lord. As we get into that, let me ask you this question. How do people know who you are? How do the people around you know who you are? See, that's kind of the question behind the question today. When the Pharisees go and they surround Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a minute, they're asking him, who do you say that you are? So I would ask you, who do you say that you are? How do you know who you are? How do the people around you that are looking at you know who you are? In any given moment, what would they see? Last night we were out at First Colony. We haven't been out in like First Colony as a family and I don't know how long. It used to be an every Friday night thing. We used to go to Chipotle and then walk on down to where like the first, the Sugarland Town Square was and we would just let the girls dance and do whatever they did. And then we had three children and forgot about that was like our normal rhythm. We hadn't been back there and I don't know how long. We went back there last night and we had a little bit of an issue with our kids and I had to scold one of my children and I had said child by the arm and I was doing this little number. And if anybody was looking at me from afar, they would have thought, what kind of father is that? In that little bitty moment, my works were on display. If you got to know me, you probably would see this Hebrews, uh, what is it, Hebrews 10 uh, dad that loves his kids and so he disciplines them, maybe uh, even so in public. Our works display who we are. Our words also display who we are. It's not just one, but both, words and works, and sometimes um, who we are isn't always evident to those around us. True or false? Yes, true. So the Bible calls us sons, daughters, and saints. New Testament never calls a believer a sinner. Instead, New Testament always calls you a saint. A saint, though, that sins. Never fully living out that identity that we truly are, and yet Jesus, the story's different. The story's different for Jesus because he is fully living out a fully integrated identity as the son of God. There's never a time where he's not living out that identity. And when people come up to him and they ask him silly questions like, who are you? Now three years into his ministry, he looks at them and goes, yo, I have been telling y'all. 
Has it not been obvious to this point? See, that's where we're at in our text today. But before we get to this question, before we get to what's going on, there's some hints. There's some hints to what's going on behind the scenes that culturally were absolutely obvious for them, but for us, we're not in that culture, and so we miss it. So let me just read like 22 to 24. Let's get us in the mindset as to what culture we're in. If you'll remember, we're in John chapter 10. We went through 1 through 21 last week, and and we don't really know how much time went by between verses 21 and 22. We do know that all of 7 to 10 was like somewhere in October, Um, so either it happened all at once in October or it happened over time, but we do know that in now 22, it's going to be winter, and it's a specific time in winter. Look at 22 with me. Now at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, just come on out and say it, man. So what's going on here? Number one, this says it's the Feast of Dedication. Um, That's not an Old Testament feast. That's not something that you find in the Torah uh, of God. Instead, the the Feast of Dedication, it's what's now known as Hanukkah. It's the Festival of Lights. And if you don't know what Hanukkah is, let me give you some historical context because it's going to play a role today in the intensity of the Pharisees. Hanukkah was uh, initiated by a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee. He led the Maccabean Revolt. It's in the book of First and Second Maccabees of the Catholic Bible. And in that particular, those two books, what we find is this historical document about how Israel regained their independence. And in that document and other historical records, what we find is that the Jews were unbelievably oppressed and persecuted underneath a king, the Syrian king at the time, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You all were dying to know that name today. Antiochus Epiphanes, and, in, and what he did, he, he was a bad dude, okay, so he would steal gold from the temple, that was not enough to desecrate the temple, but then If anybody disobeyed his laws, he would not just kill them, but publicly display their death. Um, And I'll spare you the details of what he would do to mothers and babies who who the mother would have circumcised their son. I'll, I'll spare you what he would do to them. But I'll just say this. Public displays of cruelty. Thousands upon thousands of deaths of the Jewish people at the hands of this king. And when he wasn't killing them, he was selling them into slavery. And it all culminated in what the Jews knew as the abomination of desolation. And he went into the temple of Herod that he would rebuild. He went into the temple, right? And he goes in and he, what does he do? He slaughters a pig on the altar. If you know anything about Jewish customs, you know that pigs would have been uh, found unclean animals, and he brings this unclean animal not just into Jerusalem, not just into this holy city, but into the temple, and at the altar, he brings in a statue of Zeus, and he slaughters a pig on the altar of God. The abomination of desolation. This is like the worst of the worst that anybody could do, and so up rises this guy named Judas Maccabee. 
I tell you all that because that's the feast of dedication. That's the background behind what's going on inside of the mind and in the hearts of the Pharisees. And so when they're starting to think about a Messiah who would come in and relieve them of their oppression over the Roman rule, they're thinking at this moment in time, just like Christmas kind of evokes some, some, some feelings for us, Hanukkah evoked some feelings for those Jews in the first century, and that was Messiah's coming. The oppression will be over. And all of a sudden, they got this guy that they think has said he's the Messiah in the temple of God, and they come and they surround him, the Bible says. And now they want to know. They're done playing games. They want to know if he is gonna be like Judas Maccabee. They wanna know if he's going to free them up from the oppression of Roman rule of persecution that will soon happen in Jerusalem. They wanna know if he's gonna be the guy. And of course, Messiah is standing there. Jesus is standing there and he's saying, I, I, you want a plain answer from me? I, I've been telling you guys. I've been telling you. But he's gonna play a game in the middle of this thing that it just makes me respect Jesus all the more, but I'll get to that in a little bit towards the end. But he's been saying this all along, and so what Jesus does is he says, hey, look, I've said to you these things with my words. You've not believed my words, so if you're not going to believe my words, look at my works. And that's really the theme of this passage. If you look at it, um, all throughout this particular passage, what we see is that Jesus's identity as Messiah is evident in his works but also his word. So Jesus' response is this. Look, listen, you, you, you've, you've heard my words. Now look at my works. Look at my miracles. Look at this. Verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Go down to 32. Jesus answered them. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Verse 33. The Jews answered him, and it's not for good works. And they go on. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is wrapping up what he's really one of his last confrontations with the Pharisees before he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead, spends his last supper with his guys, and then heads to the cross. That's kind of the, where we're at is you've got fall and now you've got winter and then soon it will become spring and Passover is coming. So this is really like Jesus' last winter on the earth. And he's saying, look at my works, look at my works. If you don't wanna believe my words, if you don't wanna hear my words, if somehow you've forgotten or twisted my words, look at the kind of life that I've lived. What kind of life did he live? But one that just brought life upon life. So there's two parts of the book of John. John 1 through 12 uh, are called the book of signs. And then 13 through 21, it's called the book of glory. So these book of signs that we're in, that we're kind of wrapping up through 10, 11, and 12, Jesus does seven miracles in the book of John. So when he says, look at my works, he's saying, look at my miracles. Look at what I have done upon the earth. And so to make this easy for us, I put together like a list of those things that he did. And so hopefully they'll come up on the screen. Yes? Oh, perfect. I can't see it back there, but there it is. All right. So look, John 2, he, he enters into the scene as he, as he makes water into wine. 
That's a cool way to enter the scene, I would think. Anytime I, I can do that, I would do that. Then he, he uh, heals an official son. He heals a lame man in the temple. As I told you last week, uh, lame and blind people were not allowed to be in the temple. And there's two healings that Jesus does in the temple in the book of John. And it is to restore the lame and the blind. As if to show them that truly he is the Messiah coming to make all things new. In John 6, he feeds 5,000. He then uh, walks on water with his disciples. In John 9, which we talked about a, a lot last week, he heals the blind man in the temple. And then in 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's saying, look at my works. So if you only knew his works of water into wine, of of, of, of bread being multiplied, of walking on water, of soon to be, about to be, raising from the dead. What would you think of this Jesus? Did he come just to cause a ruckus or did he come to do what he said he was going to do? And that was to bring life abundant. And so he's saying, look, you don't wanna believe my words, just look. Look at the life that I've lived as Messiah. And so before I move on, when people look at your works, what do they see? When they look at your life, what do they see? Do they see you connected with the Father as Jesus will connect himself with the Father? Or do they look at a man or a woman who is blind, deaf, or just wandering as if you have no shepherd? When people look at you and they, they make mention of or make notice of how you live, what do they see? How are you living? But that's not all altogether the point of this passage, but it is something to ask along the way because he's not just going to say, look at my works, look at the signs that I have done, but he's also gonna say, no, look at my words. And so if we put up those works on one side and then his words on the other side, you can also know that the book of John can be summarized, these thematic statements and the, the I am statements of the book of John. And so what do you see? You start to see that in John 6, I am the bread of life. In John 8, I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the door, but I'm also the good shepherd. In John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. In 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in 15, I am the true vine. And I want you to see something here because it's important for us. Works and words make evident the identity of Jesus. For the first four of these I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. He makes note of how deeply connected to who he is, I am to his connection with the Father. So in John six he says, I am the bread of life, and then he goes on in that chapter in verse 44, he says, no one comes to me unless the Father sends me, who sent me, draws him. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sends me bears witness about me. In John 10, we talked about this last week. I am, the, I am the door. I am also the good shepherd, he says in verse 14. And then in 15, he says, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. What is Jesus up to? In every word that he spoke and in every work that he displayed, he is telling them that he is so deeply connected with the Father that you should know by now who he truly is. Because they know and because they don't see him, he makes it as plain as he 
can make it in verse 30. I and the Father are one, he would say. It's as plain of an answer that he could give them. And Jesus, I will say this, Jesus claimed to be God on many occasions. In John 4, he's sitting there with the woman at the well, and she's like, well, when the Messiah comes, he, you know, he'll explain all these things to us. And he says to her privately, though, privately, he says, you who, like, I'm speaking to you. The Messiah is here, and I'm the one that's speaking to you. But publicly, how did he declare that he was the Messiah? There was no clearer statement than John uh, 8, 58, when he says, I am who I am. He's drawing himself back to Exodus 3. But right here again in verse, 10, uh, verse 30 of chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, you might say that's pretty metaphorical or it's not a plain answer. But I would say that we know that they really did know that he was the God. He was God. He was claiming to be God by their reaction. Verse 31 says this. How do we know that they knew? How do we know that they thought he was saying that I am God? Verse 31 says this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why would you want to kill somebody? Why would the Jews want to kill Jesus? He says this. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Some of us have Mormon neighbors, some of us have Jehovah's Witness neighbors, some of us have neighbors that would deny that Jesus ever say that he was God. But it is obvious in chapter 10, verse 30, that he is saying clearly, I am God in the flesh. This is the greatest statement that Jesus could ever make. And he's going to split the room here. Those that are of his sheepfold and those that aren't. But because his, his identity was evident, this is basically what he's saying. It's not anything that he hadn't said before. Jesus claimed to be God. So you can't just affirm his teachings without truly confirming his identity as God in the flesh. Look at what Jesus said in Luke, Luke 4, chapter 18. He comes on the scene, sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says this, Tim, pull that up for us. Luke chapter four, verse 18 says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's quoting now Isaiah and he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Has that happened? Have people become set free into Jesus? Yes. He's recovered the sight of the blind. He just did that. And he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll as he's reading it in the temple and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes and uh, people in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. AKA, I am the man that was to come. God in the flesh. You ever wonder what God is like? All we need to do is look at the words and the work of Jesus. Not just the miracles, those are good. Because after all, these guys are okay with a Messiah that does their miracles. He's okay, they're okay with a guy that, that makes society better. They're not okay with the Messiah that says, rearrange your life around listening to my voice. And so now it's gonna get real for all of us. We go back to that first question, like how do people know 
who we are. My prayer is that our identity would be known, it would be evident to those around us by our looking and our listening. Our looking upon Jesus and our listening to Jesus. As he displays the works and the wonder of the Father, will we look to him and listen to him along the way? It's a great question for all of us in this room. Jesus' identity is on display through words and works. Our identity is on display and, and I pray is fortified as we put our gaze and our eyes upon Jesus. Paul would say the way that we are going to be made new slowly over time. We are made new once and for all and then over time we are also being made new so that one day we will forever be made new. This, this time and this life called sanctification, this process of being made more like Jesus. The way that happens, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. I didn't give Tim any of these notes, so I'm just gonna give him time to pull that up. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The way that you and I will be changed over time is number one, one degree of glory to another, which is painstakingly slow. But it only happens as we behold, as we look upon the glory of God, as we look upon the Messiah. Hebrews 12 would tell us to fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. His name is Jesus, who was looking at the cross. Will we do that? Will our identity be known as people that are gazing upon the beauty and the perfections of God? The sad thing is, is not everyone will behold Jesus as king. Some of us in this room will never truly believe that Jesus is the good shepherd. We all live next to people that will never believe. We all are related to people that will never believe. That's a reality that we have to face, that not everybody actually is who they say they are. I mean, after all, what we find ourselves is in a conversation with the Pharisees who thought they were pleasing God by persecuting Jesus. These were the people that looked really good on the outside. I mean, their righteousness was clean, right? They had good clothes. They had a good marriage, seemingly. They had obedient children. I mean, they must have lived in the suburbs of Houston because they looked good. But on the inside, they were rotting away, and that's what Jesus continued to call out of them. See, for us, we might put ourselves and go, well, how did they not get this, and what's really going on, and why does this even matter? Because we live next to people that are pharisaical in nature. And if you don't believe that you too are pharisaical in nature, there's news. There's good news that he wants to renew us from the inside out, not just proving to other people that we're really good people, that we're really nice and that we're really kind. We're surrounded by really nice people that don't know Jesus. And he would say this, you... In verse, what is it, 26? To the Pharisees, he says to our neighbors, some of us, you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. That's a difficult, a difficult verse to swallow. The reason why it's difficult is because he's not saying...
you don't believe, and so you're not in. He's saying, you're not in, therefore you're not going to believe. The undertones of this are pure election. The undertones of this are pure God's choosing of his flock. That's gonna freak some of us out. But for those of us who've just submitted to the cause and gone, all right, this is my pen, and that is my shepherd, then we go, oh my gosh, you must know what you're doing. So if my, if, my, if my sister dies and she doesn't ever know Jesus, Lord, you know what you're doing. It's not up to me. It's up to you to bring them into the flock, to call out their name and bring them in. I trust that he's going to do that if he so wills to do that. And I plead with him to cause belief, not just in her, but in many, many other people. Plead with him. That's what the book of John is all about. 98 times in the book of John is, is, is he saying, believe, 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 believe. There's a call at the end of this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing, we may have life. There's a call to believe. There's a call to live and to look upon this shepherd so that others might believe. If God has put it in their heart, then he will draw them to himself. He will call them by name. This effectual calling of sinners to be sheep, to bring them in, that when he calls someone's name, they cannot refuse. See, that's the beautiful promise in these next few verses. Verse 26 says, you're not gonna believe because you're not part of my flock, but those who are in the flock. 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a beautiful assurance. What fuel for us to take risks inside of the shepherd's care. What what motivation for us to look to our shepherd who knows us by name and has given us the ability to hear his voice so that we know when he's calling, it's the God of the universe saying, come here, follow, come near me. I know you, he would say, right? I know them. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, so as to help us come along to greener pastures. Hey, come on, I know you don't wanna go this way. Come on, you gotta come on. This is where life is. Let me be a, a beautiful beacon of beauty and life and light. This is where it is over here, not over there where you think it is, you who sheep who have gone astray, as we just read in our time of confession. These the shepherd, but he's the good shepherd who chases after all of us who've rebelled. And don't forget, you're one of the one that rebelled. And he came after you and he left those that thought they were good and he came after those who knew and who were running the opposite way. See, didn't that, didn't that give us great assurance that it, for the people that often wonder if we can lose our salvation, because salvation didn't begin with you, that he calls us by name, that he brings us into the sheepfold, because salvation didn't be begin with you, it also can't end with you. 
See, this is a great promise. You will never perish. It doesn't say, and if you hold fast, you won't perish. He says, I'm gonna hold you fast. Therefore, it's not even a possibility that you will die. Yes, we will have physical decay. Yes, we will probably hit a grave or whatever, an urn. That's, gonna, that, that's probably coming for us unless Jesus come, doesn't come back first. But that is not death. There is a great promise beyond that that we will never eternally perish. Eternal security is found in the hands of our Redeemer. And so Jesus holds us fast. And in so doing, he says, not just do I hold you fast, but my Father who has given them to me, these sheep, he's greater than all. He is now on the playground. He says, my daddy can beat up your daddy any day of the week, and he's holding you fast too. So for believers, this great promise of assurance is something that we need to hear again and again. That we did not earn our salvation, it was given to us. It says it, right? I give them eternal life. They don't earn it. I gave it to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Like, I don't know about you, but at some point when all these babies that we're all having, like, grow up and, like, get to twos and threes, you have to teach them to not snatch. No, no, no snatch. And they go, but it's mine. No, it really isn't. It's theirs. That's what the enemy wants to do for all of us. That's what false teachers want to do for all of us. They want to lead us astray down into bad pasture to help us believe falsely that we belong to someone else. But instead, we belong to our Father and there is no one sneaky enough or powerful enough to snatch us out of his hand. We used to play a game called Spundalay in high school. Anybody else? I'm the only one. Let me explain to you what Spundalay was. <laughs> Spundalay was uh, if you were walking in the hallway and uh, you were holding something that like, somebody else wanted, they could slap it out of your hand, and if it hit the ground and they picked it up before you did, it was theirs. And you couldn't do anything because these were the rules of spundalay. But you had to yell, spundalay, and it was a snatching game. All right? Now, this would have made more sense if you went to my high school, but you didn't. But I'm just here to say, Satan cannot spundalay you out of the hand of the Father. Okay? There's just never a time when he can come, at, come around you. I realize how ridiculous that is now. I should have said that out loud before I got up here in the lights. That's fantastic. All right. How am I going to bring you back? All right. I can't. There's no bringing you back. We're just going to move on. Forget that didn't happen. Spundalay is supposed to be at Lee High School in 1994. Perfect. All right. So look, here's the deal, right? So the believers, for believers, this is the great assurance that we have, that we cannot be snatched, we cannot be lost. Uh, and while it is tempting for us to sit on our laurels in the security of the flock of God, instead we are called to look at our good shepherd who goes before us, to listen to his words, to watch his works as a gentle guide for all of life. So if you were to put up those I am statements, and I'm, that's just a gentle call for me to say, put up those I am statements. Here's the questions. Will you feast on the bread of life for your sustenance? Or will you find other means to help try and satisfy your soul? Will you trust the door of the sheep to find security in him? Will you follow the light of the world out of the darkness, forsaking whatever beckons you to be done and secret? 
Will you trust the good shepherd for direction and provision over uh, your life? Or will you demand you know better? Will you live for the here and now? Or will you put your hope in the resurrection and the life? One is temporary pleasures and one is pleasure forevermore. Will you trust in the narrow way, the narrow truth, the narrow life, this narrow definition that's not found in all these other things, or will you compromise in an increasingly tolerant society? Will you find your identity in abiding in the true vine, or will you try and achieve something without him? Because he says, without me, you can do nothing if you don't abide. You see, our words and our works are on display for our neighbors as we look and listen to Jesus, and they are wondering, do we really believe what we say we believe, or are we just like everybody else? It's a great question for us as we enter into this last part, and I'll just be really candid with you. I don't know how to enter into this part without like breaking where we were to head into where we need to go, because Jesus does something very unique right here. And it makes me want to follow Jesus even more because he just like, anybody remember Barry Sanders or am I the only one? Like Barry Sanders was the greatest like juke artist of all time. Dude can go up into the line, offensive line, he was a running back and he would just juke everybody out and he would be gone off to the left. I don't know who does that now because I don't watch a lot of NFL football, but that's, that's, that's where I'm going in my mind. He just pulls a Jesus juke and, and he gets out of this, this circle of ravenous wolves and this is how he does it, Right? When we look at this, he's giving us a better perspective, not just for the here and now, because he does this, I think, to get out of this circle. Look what happens. He's looking, saying, look at my words, look at my works. You want to know who I am? You're mad at me because I'm saying the Son of God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Okay, he's quoting Psalm 82.6 right here. We're all about to get lost in what Jesus is doing, because it's Jesus' juke. Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? What in the world is Jesus talking about? He is basically trapping them. And he's saying, you're mad at me because I'm saying I am the son of God. Of God, and yet it's your law that says you're sons of God in Psalm 82.6. So if we were to quote Psalm 82.6, it says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And Jesus is saying, look, you're okay with God saying that to the judges of the day or to Abraham or to Moses or to David, that they were gods, that they were rulers over uh, their kingdom? Why are you now th throwing a big stink over me saying I am the Son of God. Here's the reality. You can chase that, that rabbit trail all you want in commentaries and in your personal study, and I recommend that you go do that. It'll be a fun little exercise. But here is what I've landed on. Jesus is doing this to buy himself time. His hour had not yet come. And though they had encircled him and he said to them over and over again, look at my words, look at my works, why are you not listening to me? And then he just goes, you know what? I'm gonna have to push you back on your heels right now so that I can escape your hands. Doesn't your law say this is okay? And they all go, huh, what? Does our law say this is okay? No? And by that time, what does verse 39 tell us? And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped 
from their hands. And he gets out of there because he's still got Lazarus to raise from the dead. He's still got the Lord's Supper to institute. He's still got to tell his guys uh, that Judas is really not who he says he is. And he's still got the cross to endure. Now, I thought my day was over of studying. My week was over at this point. But here's where my greater encouragement came was in verses 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The writer of the book of John, John the Apostle, did not want John 10 to end with this pharisaical unbelief, with them trying to kill Jesus. But not only that, it's part of the history of Jesus' life that he goes away where John first was baptizing people and he remained there and many believed in him there. For me, this gives me great perspective on the long view. Not the here and now, but for the long view. And here's why, because all of a sudden we get reintroduced to a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist came before Jesus and he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And then he was murdered. His head was cut off. But before he was murdered, he was in jail and he's sends a dispatch out to Jesus because he's put his life on the line for Jesus as Messiah and he's pointed, he's the Lamb of God. And while he's in jail, he sends a dispatch to Jesus and he says, hey, so are you the guy or are we gonna expect somebody else? He wants to know if he's dying for the right reasons. And Jesus, of course, sends back this great quote that we already read out of Luke 4. It's this great quote out of Isaiah that I'm, I'm, I'm setting people free. I'm healing the lame. I'm, I'm healing the, the blind. It's a great reminder for us that even though John the Baptist probably didn't see a lot of fruit from his ministry, long after he died, people were coming to faith because of his testimony of Jesus. This is the encouragement for me. Maybe it's an encouragement for you. I don't know how long you've been walking with Jesus. I don't know how long you've been in the flock of God looking to your good shepherd. I don't know. But I do know that Galatians 6 says that in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Christian, don't give up. Believer, don't give up. Don't, don't grow so weary in doing good. So long after he was murdered, his ministry lived on. And in poetic beauty, Jesus returns to where Jesus, John the Baptist was baptizing people and re-invites those people to follow Messiah long after John the Baptist was there putting people in water. And you had to know while he was in prison, being paraded at a party, doing what he all had to do, John the Baptist instead was wondering, is this all going to be worth it? And later on, much, many years later after his death, would it be proven to be worth it? For many would believe. Whatever you're going through, don't give up. Whatever is weighing on you, don't wear down. Don't quit. Keep going strong, friends. It's worth it the fight. 
There will be a harvest in due season. Not in your season, in due season. If we would just not grow weary in doing good. This is why Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest dude to ever live. Because he faithfully just sowed seed. And very few did he see come to know Jesus. Instead, those that came to believe in his word, he goes, that's him, go follow him. Now he's here, go. Years later, would people come to know Jesus? So we end with these questions. Where are you in this journey? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Not just affirming that he's a real dude, but like following him, knowing his voice through prayer and circumstance and through his word. He's speaking to you. Are you listening? Are you following? Do you believe that Jesus truly is Messiah? And if you're following, if you're in the sheepfold, are you growing weary? Because if you are, like I have many a day, my prayer is that these last few verses, verse 40, 41, and 42, would be great encouragement for your soul to keep going. Let's pray together. Father, our lives throw so many things at us from hurricanes that people are dealing with in the Carolinas today, waking up to another day of rain and just sogginess like we have. Or maybe it's just clear skies and we think everything's good. Our lives are so variable from one moment to another. But one thing we know is that in all things, you are holding us fast. You are holding us in your hands. You are, you're not just holding us like, like a baby would, but you are, you are, you're holding us like a, like a dad or a mom would in a crowded, vicious area where war has broken out. And you're holding us like a dad would hold his son, his newborn son, as if to say, no one can snatch this baby, these kids out of my hands. You just hang on to me because I'm holding on to you. So no matter what's going on, you are directing things and at the same time, you are holding us secure. So whether we find ourselves wondering what it's like to be in the sheepfold of God or whether we've been enjoying good pasture for years, no matter where we are in that journey, Lord, I pray that we are gazing upon your son Jesus. For when we behold you, we become like you. And that's the call for all of us, Lord. And so you say that you will speak. You say that we will hear your voice. You say that you know our inward parts for you formed them. And then you call us to follow you. May we respond in kind. May we do so worshiping you for keeping us secure and holding us. We love you. May we respond now by the power of your spirit, not rush to go do whatever we feel like we need to go do. Our kids, they'll be fine for another five minutes. We're not doing communion today, and so we can just enjoy this last song. And, and by enjoy it, I mean we can just sing it. We may not know it, but we're gonna sing it. 
what great truths there are to knowing that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You brought us in and you will keep us. In Christ's name, amen.